0: Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians chapter one, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world In
1: 1998, the great biologist E.O. Wilson said that we are drowning in information, yet starved for wisdom. So despite the fact that that's a pretty bad mixed metaphor, you get what he's saying, right? Um, And that was in 1998, which is over 20 years ago, believe it or not. And in 1998, only about 41% of adults were actually online at that time. 41%. And the other 60% said they didn't really care. They were just kind of indifferent about the internet. It's crazy, right? So if that's in 1998 that we're drowning in information and yet starved for wisdom, how much more today? In the last two years, 90% of the world's information that has ever been created was created in the last two years. Which I guess is what happens when you go from cave drawings to Cat videos, right? Like you just start pumping out data like crazy. 90% that's ever been created by humanity was created in the last two years. We live in an age of information. Nowadays, every second, there are 40,000 Google searches being made. Every second. And there's estimates that in 2025, there will be 175 zettabytes of data. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's okay. I didn't either. But this is, maybe this will make it plain. If a gigabyte was like a coffee cup, uh, a zettabyte would be the volume of the Great Wall of China. 175 zettabytes of data in 2025 of information. We're flushed in an age of information. And this is, it's not without its consequences, okay? So maybe the first consequence is is this new field that's emerged called big data analysis. And essentially what big data analysis does is it it watches you and I, it tracks you and I, it pays attention to you and I, our habits, our spending, what we search, what we look for, And, and typically the purpose of this is to reduce us into marketable data points, The second problem that this age of information brings to us is is that we experience an information overload, which leads to what's been called information anxiety. We all know this. It's that gap that we all feel between what we know and what we think we should know, because there's so much out there to know. And maybe the third problem that this brings is that in our society, one of the worst social sins is to appear uninformed. Right, And so what happens is is that because it's so embarrassing to not have an opinion, we we read hot takes, we listen to sound bites, we develop superficial opinions based on alternative facts, and then we argue our points relentlessly. We live in an age of information. Now, I'm not sounding the alarm on technology, trust me. I grew up with a, a case of encyclopedias, So when I wanted to go do research, I went down into our basement, and I thumbed through an encyclopedia, and I found, like, the paragraph on whatever topic I was writing about. I've benefited, you've benefited greatly from technology, from this information that is at our disposal like it's never been before in human history. So I'm not sounding the alarm on technology, but... I think we could learn a little bit. I think we could heed some warnings here. And and so here's a warning from an unlikely source. About 400 years before Jesus, Socrates, the great philosopher, was concerned about a new emerging technology of his day. Writing. Writing. Pen and paper. And this is what Socrates said. He said this about writing. He said, Writing will create forgetfulness in the learner's soul's because they will not use their memories. They will be hearers of many things and will have learned nothing. They will appear to be omniscient and will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome company, having the show of wisdom without the reality. Socrates said that 400 years before Jesus about pen and paper, but as you listen to me, you immediately made the connection that could be made to Google and Gigabytes. Having the appearance of wisdom without the reality. Seemingly omniscient, but learning nothing. And so, since we live in an information age, information is increasingly cheap and wisdom is increasingly valuable. So here's the question. The question is, what does it look like? How do we live wisely in an age bloated with information yet starving for wisdom? How do we do that? How do we cultivate that kind of wisdom? And so our text this morning wants to tell us that wisdom matters. Wisdom really matters. And so I'm just going to look at it in two points. And if you notice on your, on your worship guide or if you've got your Bible, you can get it out. And there's really two paragraphs. And so my two points kind of correlate with those two paragraphs. The first point is this. How to be foolish. How to be foolish. And the second point is this. How to be wise. How to be wise. Pretty simple. Here we go. Look with me at verse 18. How to be foolish. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Now, the Corinthian church of its day was, was saturated with its surrounding culture. And if we're honest, this is actually true of us today more than we'd like to admit. I, I think it's a reality that we, we actually are more like a sponge than a Ziploc when it comes to our surrounding culture. And unless we realize that, we're in great danger. And so were the Corinthians. And so Paul warns them. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so what that means is that the Corinthian church was was really quick and eager to kind of jump on board anybody that sounded articulate or eloquent. And yet they were also quick to kind of blush in the face of anything that kind of stepped on their sensibilities and their cultural sophistication. And so Paul says to them, the word of the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He's warning them. He's warning us. Don't let those who are perishing shape and form the way that we hear the gospel and the word of the cross. Because Greco-Roman society was, it prized status and honor. It was a real temptation for the Corinthians to desire a high social status. It's a good thing church people have changed, right? But believing in the message of Jesus, was it was not going to win any esteem in Corinth. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, This wasn't a new smart philosophy. It was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. That's the word of the cross. And so crucifixion was so disgusting that it was, it was illegal. You could not crucify a Roman citizen. And, and a Roman statesman that lived about 40 years before Jesus, his name was Cicero, he said this, The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. In other words... The word cross was the kind of word you'd tell your kids, do not say that word at the dinner table. It was disgusting. And this is why Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And we know this today. Like we believe some things that are seemingly crazy, right? I mean, what we confess is that a Middle Eastern guy from a backwoods town who was born in a barn— who has three years of recorded history where he did some very non-modern things like casting out demons, that he was mistried, that he was betrayed and mistried and murdered and apparently came back from the dead. But not like Captain America coming out of the ice and not like the cool zombie movies. He came back from the dead and now we're supposedly waiting for him to come back on a horse with bleach white hair and a tattoo on his thigh to reverse all the wrongs of this world. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. This is what we believe. Respectable, educated, otherwise fairly normal people like yourselves believe this stuff. What in the world? And yet we say, yeah, that's right. Because we love Jesus. Because we've met Jesus. Because we've found in him something and someone that we've never found anywhere else. There's something about him that is so beautifully and powerfully self authenticating. We can't help ourselves but put our trust in this one. And this is the folly that it is to the world. The the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But he goes on in verse 18, he says, But to those, but to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. And that's why we can say amen. Because if you said amen to what I just got done talking about, it's because you are being saved. Present tense, ongoing, God is at work in your life. But the Corinthians were not super jazzed about identifying with this message. It was unfashionable. Because the gospel truly is nonsense to our world. And sometimes that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And so because we get uncomfortable about its unfashionableness, we tend to water it down to kind of take the edge off. And there was a scholar named Richard Niebuhr who said this. He said, about how we edit the gospel for our times, he said, this gospel is about a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That's the temptation to edit the gospel in our time, in every time. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. And so because we're so tempted to smooth out the rough edges, to downplay the sin and the judgment and the crucifixion of all of this, Paul knows he needs to throw down the gauntlet. And so in verse 20, he says this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, I don't know where you went to high school, But where I went to high school, that's called being called out, right? That's like, we're going to go throw fists in the parking lot, and if you don't show up, you're going to look like a punk in front of everybody. Paul is calling for a philosophical brawl. Who's showing up? Who's got something to say? The answer is nobody. Where's your public intellectual? Where's your journalist? Where's your TED talker? Who's got wisdom that can confound the wisdom of God? It doesn't exist. It's nowhere. And so Paul's challenging the so-called wisdom of this world. And he goes on in verse 21, he says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world could not know God through its own wisdom because the wisdom of this world is so contrary to the wisdom of God. See, we're all tempted to make God into basically just a bigger, stronger, smarter version of ourselves. And you can see this if you just kind of look out at other religions, that they're just enlarged versions of people. They typically behave just as badly too, right? Like if you read Greek mythology, you see how the gods behaved. They're just like big bad humans. Like, if we're going to be really honest, 72 virgins in paradise sound a lot like the kind of thing a Middle Eastern man would make up if he was in the desert all alone by himself. It's the wisdom of this world. And so when God shows up, he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's incomparable. It's incomparable. And that's why it comes off as folly. But this is good news. It's good news because God has made himself known, not through human wisdom, but through a Middle Eastern man being spit on while he bleeds out on a chunk of wood. It begs the question, what kind of God is this? It challenges our assumptions about who God might be. So the wisdom of this world is about self-reliance, but the cross is about self-sacrifice. The wisdom of this world is about the glorification of man and yet the cross is about the humiliation of God. The wisdom of this world is about raw power and the cross shows God's power through Jesus being beaten raw. The wisdom of this world says if there is a God, he's far off. And the wisdom of the cross says that God is near, near enough to bleed. The wisdom of this world is about saving face and the cross is about Jesus's beard plucked, disgraced face. The wisdom of this world is about man making himself invulnerable. The wisdom of the cross is about God becoming vulnerable. Here's the contrast. And if you, if you read the Gospel of John, you get towards the end in John 18, and there's this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he's praying to the Father, and, and it comes to the point when about a hundred Roman soldiers start rolling up and and they've got shields and swords and armor on and they're rolling 100 deep and and, and they come up and Jesus says, whom do you seek? I would have said who, but Jesus has good grammar apparently. Whom do you seek? And the Romans go, Jesus of Nazareth. And watch, this is what happens. Go read it in John 18 because you'll miss it if you don't pay close attention. They say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus says, I am he. And all 100 Roman soldiers face plant in that moment. That's what the Bible says, a little bit. And and so they fall down before him and they get back up. And you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? I think this is what's happening. I think Jesus flexes a little bit. I think he flexes a little bit in that moment so that he can say, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Just so you know who's in charge here. You come with your swords and spears. That's nothing. I can call down 12,000 legions of angels like that. I didn't mean the Thanos snap thing, but you understand what I'm saying. And so Jesus shows listen, the wisdom of God, the power of God is made known in Jesus laying down his power. The wisdom of God is made known in the silence of Jesus before his accusers. This is the good news that we proclaim. And so this is why Paul says in verse 21. The world did not know God through wisdom, through its own wisdom, because it pleased God to make himself known through the folly of the cross. God takes pleasure in disclosing himself in such a reality-flipping way as the cross of Christ. And so here's the question. Do you know God? Is your view of God more informed by the wisdom of the world or by the folly of the cross? And so it's easy to humble, to, to worship a God of our own making because we don't have to humble ourselves. We're not humbled by the cross. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. That's, that stumbling block means it's, it's a scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jews demand signs. They wanted to know that this is unmistakably God showing up here. And so the gospel proclaims Jesus as the long-awaited king of Israel. The king of the Jews is what hung over his head when he was being crucified. And although it was ironic, it was mocking him, the irony was that he was truly enthroned as the king of the Jews when he was hanging on that cross. And so the Jews seek They seek these signs. They demand these signs. And to them, a crucified king is as much of an oxymoron as a bankrupt financial planner or a meat-eating vegan. It just doesn't make sense because they demand signs. And if we're real with ourselves, some of us demand signs too. We regularly are saying things like, you know what? Unless God shows up in certain ways, I'm not going to trust him. If God were real, he would have healed this disease. If he really cared, he would have repaired this marriage. If he was really good, I wouldn't still be single. What are the signs that you're asking for? What signs do you demand from God? And the problem is, is that we all know that signs are never going to be enough. Now, if you've been reading with us in community Bible reading, you know that we're going through the book of Exodus right now. And there's this story that happens in Exodus, and, and what happens is God is saving his people from slavery, he's redeeming them, freeing them from slavery, and he leads them out of Egypt, and as he's leading them out of Egypt, they get themselves into this bind, because what's in front of them is the Red Sea, and what's behind them is Pharaoh and his army, and they're pressing in, and the Israelites are freaking out, so they cry out. And, and the Lord has Moses kind of stick his staff in the ground, or, or raise his staff up, I don't remember, and, and the the Red Sea splits in half, and it says that the Israelites all filed through on dry ground. And as they got to the end, they got out, and the the Red Sea closed back in on Pharaoh and his armies, decimating all of them. This is Exodus 14, and at the end of that chapter, it says that the Israelites saw the great power of God. In other words, they saw a sign like nobody else had ever seen. And in Exodus 15, Moses sings this like, truly like a heavy metal ballad about God crushing his enemies. And, and, and we get to the end of Exodus 15, and what do we have happen? The Israelites are groaning because they're thirsty. This is one of those moments when I'm reading the Bible, and I'm like, I'm really glad I'm not God. Because my response would have been like, oh, you're thirsty, are you? You know who's not thirsty? Pharaoh and his armies. What do you think? You want more water? I can give you more water. But the Lord's not like that. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And that's Exodus 14 and 15. And we get to Exodus 16 and they're hungry and they're grumbling for food. And they're saying, let us go back to Egypt. You got to know that signs are never going to be enough. No amount of sign is going to convince you that God is good and wise and powerful except for the sign of the cross. And so we're the Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. Now, if you read Plato's Republic, he's got this allegory of the cave. And, and what the allegory of the cave essentially is, is that uh, there's these people that have been in this dim and dingy cave all of their life, and, and they've never seen the outside world. And so all they know are kind of the flickers of shadows on the cave walls, and, and, and eventually somebody escapes. And the escaped prisoner makes it out of the cave and gets out into the, uh, into the open light and sees the sun in all of its greatness and grandeur and can't help himself but goes back into the cave to try to convince them what the world is really truly like. And in this way, Plato is like the classic example of how Greeks seek wisdom. Because what they believe truly is that it's it's through wisdom that salvation comes. It's through through knowing things, through through experiencing the world as it truly is. That is how people are saved. Philosophy, the love of wisdom. We are, we are Homo sapiens, which means the wise man. And so this idea that, that philosophy is what saves us, that it's the cure for the soul. This returning prisoner is basically like the philosopher who's coming to give light to the ignorant. And Paul says to that, You want wisdom? Look at this execution instrument over here. The Greeks are like, What is up with this guy? And he's saying, Look at this cross. You want to see wisdom? Look at this cross. And if we're real for a moment, we are like the Greeks. We live in such a, an age where if we, scientism kind of reigns supreme, and so if we just did enough research, and if we just had enough education on the social ills of our day, then, then you know what? World peace would, would soon come. And, I mean, it's just evident that that's not true. Just look around. I just got done saying how much more informed we are than ever before. I don't think the world's any better. And so we, like the Greeks, find ourselves seeking wisdom, thinking that's going to be the way that we have salvation. And so do you find yourself like the Greeks who look at the cross, look at this execution instrument and think it's, it's folly, it's foolishness, it's unsophisticated given the education that we have? Do you find yourself there? But both the, the Jews demanding signs and the wisdom of the Greeks They're both just forms of misdirection, right? If you've ever watched a magician, they do, they use this trick called misdirection where they, they kind of get your attention over here, but really over here is where the magic's happening. I think that's all this is. Give us signs, give us wisdom. It's just a way to say, hey, don't look at our hearts because that's where really the problem's at. We are unwilling to humble ourselves and the cross demands humility, And so the problem with the cross is that it's incomprehensible until we're willing to humble ourselves. It's offensive because it means that we are far worse than we would ever admit. And today I think the the resistance to the cross sounds like this. It sounds like, I'm generally a good person. You know, I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. On and on and on. These are just ways of, of kind of misdirecting away from the, the cross and, and its claim on us and its humbling power, the scandalousness of it. And so we often think that, you know, we can manage our issues. We might self-medicate a little bit, but with some therapeutic techniques, we could we kind of clean this up. The cross says it takes the death of the Son of God to clean you up. That's humbling. It challenges us. And so we're not in need of antibiotics, but a transplant. A band-aid won't work. We need something more akin to amputation. And that offends us. It steps on our toes. We don't like that. And so I want to ask you, you, are you willing to lay that down? Are you willing to admit that even today, even today with your kind of polished, cleaned up version of yourself, you've maybe been a Christian 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. Like even today... It takes the death of Jesus to clean up your mess. Will you humble yourself before the cross? And so what we're really saying is the cross says, can you be nothing and let him be everything? Can you do nothing and trust that he has done it all? Because the cross is a constant reminder to all of us of our absolute inability to do life on our own. And so let it be that for us. This is why Paul criticizes kind of the the eloquence of his days, because what it was is it it was kind of sweetening the cross. It was making it a little bit more palatable to those who would hear it. I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I can trust you. I think I'm going to be a little transparent here. I drink my coffee with flavored creamer. I know. And what it is is that I just... You know, I just don't like the, the taste of black coffee. I, I haven't developed my palate in that way. And I, so, I know some of you are so much more sophisticated than me, and that's okay, I get it. We can talk later after the service. But this is what it comes down to, is like, you know, I don't care about a pour-over or a French press, because there's nothing, there's nothing that the synthetic called International Delight cannot make <laughs> Delicious. And so I just, I'm just refusing to develop my taste buds on this, all right? Likewise, the cross is disgusting to those who the Spirit of God has not given them a palate, who changed their taste buds. And so even now, through the preaching, through the proclamation of Christ crucified, the Holy Spirit is working in some of your hearts, hopefully most of your hearts, drawing you, calling you, saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what it means when Paul says, to those who are called, the cross becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But what is it that you want? What is it that you demand from God until you'll surrender your life to him? Because, and here's the the summary of this first point. Because whatever that is, it's what makes you a fool whatever it is that you refuse to relinquish to the kind and merciful hands of Jesus, whatever it is, makes you foolish. But that's not all. We've seen how to be foolish. I want to turn our, attentions here, our attention here to, to how to be wise. How to be wise. Let's look t- together at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So how do we become wise? The first thing we do is we we consider our calling. We consider our calling. He says, not many of you were of noble birth. <laughs> That's me. Right? Like, I, the best claim to fame that I have is that in Macomb, Michigan— You heard of that place? Of course you haven't. In Macomb, Michigan, where I'm from, there's a street sign that says Kant on it, my last name. And that's because some developer came along and bought my family's farmland and turned it into a subdivision. And so I have a street sign with the name Kant on it. Not many of you were of noble birth. I'm one of those. Okay? When I married Alana, my wife, I took her there. I was like, hey, babe. Street sign. Our name on it. What do you think? You're welcome. Welcome to the family, right? We got our photo in front of it and stuff. I can show you sometime. This is me not being of noble birth. And, and it's not just that. When I was called by Jesus, I wasn't wise according to worldly standards. I wasn't powerful. I wasn't of noble birth. And I'm still not. But God. Right? Look at verse 27 with me. It says, But God, which are Paul's favorite words for the reversal of grace. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Hear me, choosing the lowly, the weak, the despised is one of God's signature moves throughout the story of scripture. If you've got a Bible, you can flip there. Deuteronomy 7. Moses is talking to the people of Israel and he's, it's kind of his farewell sermon of sorts. And he says this to them. Deuteronomy 7, verses six through eight, he says, "'The Lord your God has chosen you "'to be a people for his treasured possession "'out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth.'" You've got to feel pretty good about that. He goes on. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord your God set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So much for the Old Testament God being different from the New Testament God. It's craziness. You hear right in this verse how God, if you caught it, what it said is that I love you because I love you. That's why. That's what the Lord said. He chose Israel not because of anything in and of themselves, but because he loved them. I love you because I love you. And in that, you could sum up the whole Bible with this phrase that, that God chooses the unlovable to love them into loveliness. God chooses the unlovable to love them into loveliness. That's the summary of the whole Bible. And we see that here in our text today. And so, what Paul is saying to do is consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider how Jesus worked, not because of anything in and of you, but because of his love, his mercy, his compassion towards you. And this has always been, it still is today, but it's always been countercultural there's a, a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus. And Celsus said this about, about the early church. He said, Because Christians admit that ignorant people are worthy of their God, Christians show that they want to convert only foolish, dishonorable, stupid people and only slaves, women, and little children. Because this message of good news for the weak and the lowly is foolishness to the world. But to us, we hear that, and all God's people again say, amen. Amen to a God who's so full and abounding with grace that he chooses what is lowly in the world to put to shame the strong and the wise and the ones who are in. And so, as Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, it's kind of like this. It's almost like the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are choosing a basketball squad for a little five-on-five or something like that. And, you know, you've got this like LeBron James looking dude and this young buck looks like Zion Williamson standing there. And then you've got this guy with like five-foot-tall tube socks tripping over his own feet. And and the father looks at Jesus like, I want that one. Yeah, get that one. Bring him on our team. And, you know, picks are happening. Everybody's like, what is up with this guy? And they just don't understand why the Trinity would choose the weak and the lowly. Until the tip-off. The tip-off happens and, you know, the Trinity's out there doing the three-man weave and, you know, they're dishing up alley-oops to this clumsy guy that nobody would choose. Some of y'all missed that three-man weave thing. That's okay. We'll come back to it later. And, and they're, they're dishing up alley-oops and they're just running up the score on the opponent. Why? Why are they doing this? Look at verse 29. Paul answers it. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. At the end of the day, we can point and say, it's because of him. It's because of his mercy, his grace, nothing in and of myself. I was weak, I was lowly, I was foolish, and he chose me. And he chose me. And he shows his grace to the world through me. And so listen, maybe some of you do have status and power and nobility, but the entry point into Christianity is counting all of that as worthless for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God crucifies human boasting. Now, I'm going to skip some of this because of time, but I want to go to our conclusion here, which is that as we close, it's so important for us to see that wisdom is first and foremost about learning someone, not about learning something. Okay, look at verse 30. And because of him, and because of God, that is, not because of you, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, to be wise is not merely learning to live skillfully, but learning to live with the one in whom is hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And and so what this comes down to is that wisdom for life in this world is in the one who gave himself for the life of this world. Now it says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to try to make that plain real quick. To be in Christ is similar to how they are in Corinth or how we are in Orlando. Because we are in Orlando, we have various benefits of living in Orlando, right? We have, we have two seasons that are mostly sunny. That's kind of nice. We have Disney in our backyard. We have a booming housing market. We have the University of Central Florida. That was more for me. I understand. And so we have all of these benefits because we are in Orlando. And so those of us who are also in Christ are dual citizens. We get the benefits of living in Orlando, but we get the benefits of living in Christ, who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and on and on and on and on. The benefits of being in Christ are innumerable. And so becoming wise is about knowing a person. It's about becoming more acquainted with a person. Now, in my own life, what this looks like is I often will feel incompetent or inadequate to do what I need to do. Whether it's pastoring or counseling or marriage or just being a human, like it's difficult at times. I feel incapable. And my, my tendency, my knee jerk is to short circuit abiding in Jesus and to go to the wisdom of this world, to go to podcasts, even if they're really rich and good or, or read some books on this. And in doing that, I forget that... I am in the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what, what Paul's calling us to and what I'm calling us to is that we would abide in Jesus, the one in whom God has shown forth his wisdom. And so that's a moment-by-moment interactive relationship with Jesus. Rather than becoming more well-informed, we become more dependent on him. Jesus, I need you right now. Help me. Knowing that he is closer to you than we are to ourselves. And that he's near enough to call upon him. And so in conclusion, uh, Charles Spurgeon summarizes it like this. He says, our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. If you had asked the apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would have pointed to their master and they would have said, we believe him. But what are your doctrines? There they stand incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He is our example. What then do you believe? We preach Christ crucified. Our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ Jesus. There is no summary of the faith of a Christian that can encompass all that we believed except that word, Christ. The wisdom of the cross is that if you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have nothing but Jesus... You have everything. And when that settles into your hearts, you can say with Paul, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are drawing us by your Holy Spirit to your son Jesus even now. You're calling us. I pray that those who are being saved would hear this message of The cross, not as folly, but as the wisdom and the power of you, God. Show your power this morning. Work in this proclamation of Christ crucified. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.